Don't worry about that. Don't, I mean, don't be too worried about it because we haven't started the program, so we're good. Okay? So all of that to say is there is a pre-existent form of Jesus, which is really uh, what we uh, what we finished up talking about last time. Just have a few more points with that to make, and then we'll move on to the incarnation. So we'll be finished with the pre-incarnate, and we'll move to the incarnate Christ. Okay, I think we're on page 8, if I'm correct. So we've established that Jesus is prophesied in the Old Testament. He makes appearances in the Old Testament in the form of the angel of Yahweh. And we also find statements to the effect that Jesus is eternal and so therefore uh, should be thought of as pre-existent, existing before the, uh, the before the gospel accounts. So in the Old Testament we find Isaiah 9, 6, unto us a child is born, unto us a child is given, prophecy of Jesus Christ, his name shall be called the Everlasting Father. And I'm drawing attention here to the everlasting portion of that. We We'd probably some comments could be in order for the father part as well. Don't don't get the idea here that there's a confusion between the first and second members of the Trinity here, but rather he is he is he is an author and originator of life. So probably drawing attention to the fact that he is a he is the source of all that is. Uh, not that he is the father, as in the first person of the Trinity. Uh, but this child is called everlasting, and that's the point we want to make here, is that uh, he has been from the bowl. Okay. Micah 5, 2. As for you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, little to be among the clans of Judah, from you will go forth for me, one to be a ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, even from the days of eternity. So the baby to be born in Bethlehem has been around since the beginning of time. Okay. You also find the same thing in the New Testament. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, implying that He was there. Uh, Even Jesus' statement there in the book of Revelation, I am the first and the last. Okay, so all of these point to the fact that Jesus had an existence prior to his arrival on earth as a baby in the manger in Bethlehem. Okay, I'm going to skip. I, I've mentioned to you that I'm using these notes for, for my, my seminary studies as well. There are sections here and there that I'm going to skip, and I'm going to skip that next paragraph. I just, it just probably is a little bit more heady than we need to talk about here, so we'll skip that. You can read it, though. If you have questions, you're welcome to talk about it. But let's move here to the incarnation now. So we discussed his pre-incarnate self. Now let's talk about his incarnation. And that's word incarnation. We've been throwing it around, uh, but uh, if you've had any Latin, or even if you hadn't had any Latin, you can probably pick up some of the... Uh, some of the uh, etymology of that word here, the idea of incarnate. Carne, of course, meat, carnivorous, uh, so meat-eating. So, uh, so the incarnation is the infleshment or the embodiment or enfleshment of God the second person. So uh, this is the act whereby the second person of the Trinity is permanently embodied. Like I said, I think we mentioned this last time, but... Uh, when we talk about the incarnation, 
we're talking about the permanent enfleshment. He does appear apparently in fleshly form at points here and there in the Old Testament. You know, remember this this angel of Yahweh is actually has a physical form. He's called a man, uh, but and so we perhaps there is some sort of temporary bodily form that Jesus takes. Uh, but it doesn't seem to be something that's permanent at this point. This is the permanent enfleshment, or the permanent embodiment of Jesus in a human nature, flesh and form, which he holds forever. The Incarnation is a fundamental doctrine of Christianity. It goes back even to more fundamental doctrine, uh, the Trinity. There couldn't be a, an Incarnation without the Trinity, and there could be no salvation without the Incarnation. So we talked a little bit about that last semester when we talked about the Trinity. Uh, but in order for the Christian system to move forward, we could not have a strict monotheist kind of arrangement. I say strict monotheism. We do believe in monotheism, but... It is it is a, a, a God with a single essence manifested in three persons, and it is the only way that uh, many of the things we find in Scripture make sense. You know, First yeah, Corinthians eight six that God is be- the Father is before all things and from all things and to all things, but Jesus is he, all things are through Him and by Him. And uh, so the, these, these, the creation itself, the the uh, the, the idea of prayer uh, implies that there has to be uh, to the Father, through the Son, by the Holy Spirit, the with the help of the Holy Spirit, who uh, helps us with groanings that cannot be uttered. So it, it adds contours to a lot of aspects of the Christian faith, and most specifically, uh, it makes the atonement possible. Because God remains transcendent while at the same time imminent, and that's the uh, that's the that's the beauty of what the Trinity allows us to do. Uh, the Christ, the second person of the of the Godhead, is actually manifested in the flesh, all the while God remains transcendent, distant, sovereign, and 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 above. He's also with us. And that's made possible here because of that. So, uh, and, and, and we also say there also had to be a perfect and sinless substitute to pay the penalty of sin. There had to be, um, uh, you know, once, once sin occurred and once God in, uh, expressed his intention to save people from sin, what had to happen? Well, judgment had to fall. And it had to be a very precise and specific judgment. It couldn't just be a judgment willy-nilly. It had to be a human death. That's the that's the punishment for human sin, is human death. Uh, it can be your death, that's one option, or it can be the death of another. And so this is the way in which God is is able to die a human death, all the while remaining God. So this perfect and sinless substitute had to be a man. In order for the for for it to match the crime, but it also had to be God because without it being without there being this divine element here, uh, the, the death of Christ would be limited. You know, if, if you know, in theory, someone could one person could die in the in the stead of one person, but 
this one person has to die for the world, the sins of the world, and and only a divine person has the what can I say the merit, the uh, the uh, the ability to save more than himself or one other. Uh, he he had to be God, so there had to be. So here, only a truly human person could suffer and die, and only a truly divine person could give that suffering infinite value. And when he says infinite, you have to understand. Bettner is a five-point Calvinist, but uh, he he understands. But maybe we could use the word expansive value, or or or, or value to uh, extend beyond the one to the many. God could not send his son apart from a triunity or at very minimum a plurality in the Godhead. He had to send him, which means there has to be a sender and one sent. So at least a plurality in the Godhead is necessary for this to happen. Okay, so the incarnation was necessary. Once God determined in his sovereignty that he was going to save men, this was the only way it could be done, and the Trinity made that necessary. Uh, and and it made it possible for him to be incarnated. Okay? Now, as we've said here, there's a pre-incarnation of Jesus, so the incarnation shouldn't be confused with Jesus' origin. Uh, There are, you know, there's... for instance, a, a couple of points in the in the scriptures we find this day I have begotten you, and some will point, aha, this is when the second person of the Trinity started, or or or, or something of that nature. That's that's not the point here. Christ is eternal. It's not as though God was born in Bethlehem. God has always been. Uh, this this manifestation of God in human form was born in Bethlehem. He did not receive his sonship at this time. Um, more on that below. But the incarnation has to do with his coming into the world, his entrance into human life. And you can see here the lengths to which the scripture writers go to establish that he was before he is, right? And so you look at these these verses, and if, uh, this is not the kind of language you you used when a baby is born, ordinarily, right? He was in the beginning, but he became flesh. Uh, You've got a grandson, right? Yes. You wouldn't use that kind of language to describe. He was in the beginning, but he became flesh. Well, no, that's, that's a weird way of talking about a new baby, unless it happens to be a baby uh, who has a pre-existence. He came down from heaven. Yeah, sometimes in a in a in a, in a moment of uh, of uh, of of ecstasy, you say something like, "Oh, he's just heavenly." Oh, but now that's no, <laughs> no, he's he's quite earthly, you know. <laughs> uh, but uh, but uh, but uh, but this this baby came down from heaven. He was made the seed of David. Well, that's a weird <clears throat> way of putting it. Uh, so he was in eternity past, and he was he was inserted into this line of David. He was made the seed of David. He was sent in the likeness of human flesh. God sent his son to be made of a woman. Okay? Now, 
I say here that sending itself doesn't demand pre-existence. John, for instance, in John 1, 6 says, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. Uh, so it's possible to speak in terms of the sending of a child in terms of God's general sovereignty and providence. Uh, but this language here, he sent his son to be made of a woman, is you know adds elements to this that just don't work for ordinary babies. He humbled himself and took upon himself the form of a servant. That he was he was in a he prior to this he had a form, but it wasn't a human form. He was in a divine form, and was made in the likeness of men. He was found in fashion as a man. He was made lower than the angels. Philippians two says, and you can actually, if if you look at that verb, uh, the word actually means he was diminished. In other words, he was here, and he went here. He was diminished from what he was until he was made a human, which, in the pecking order of God's creation, is less powerful. In that sense, less uh, than the angels. In some ways, we're more than the angels. We judge angels, for instance, and, so, and such. But in terms of raw power and, uh, and uh, majesty, angels sort of are a, are, a, are a tick above us here in the pecking order. He partook of flesh and blood. He was made to be like unto his brethren. The idea here, he was he was altered or perhaps better, something was added to him in order to make him like his brothers. He was given a body. That means he was. Did without he was was embodied, was given a body. And he was manifested. That is, he was made visible. So all of this language here points uh, very clearly to the idea uh, that prior to his incarnation, there was something else. But this original form of God takes on a second, second form, and we find this described here in Philippians 2, it should be a Roman numeral B, I'm not sure exactly how that became a Roman numeral C there, but uh, Roman numeral B, the kenosis of Jesus Christ. Are you familiar with that term? Does the kenosis uh, ring a bell with you? Okay, for some of you it does. Let's look at these verses here. Um, and I, I do want to take a little bit of a look at the context here because it does become important to us. Um, but uh, Philippians 2, 5 to 8, Remember, Paul is, it's in a context here of how we ought to live, okay? If you have any encouragement or comfort from above, if you're tender and compassionate, make my joy complete by being like-minded, having unity, having a common love, being one in spirit and purpose, don't be selfish or conceited, be humble, each of you, and then, and here's here's where the transition comes. Each of you should act like Jesus. Okay, so so note the context because it's going to come back in a in a while. It will be a little while before we come back, but I think it is an important context. So, what was Jesus like? Okay, well, here's here's the explanation. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who. Being as to his very nature God, in the morphe of God, that was his form, that was his nature, his essence, his substance, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, 
that is something to be clung to in sort of a selfish way. But rather, he made himself nothing. Taking the very nature, this form, Morphe again, of a servant in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself. This is a, the critical verb we're going to look at here. And became obedient unto death, even death on the cross. And then after that, it's this, this humbling humiliation is reversed. Therefore, after the death on the cross, God exalted him to the highest place and give, he gave him the name that is above every name, the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and earth. And under the earth and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Okay, so this word kenosis comes from a Greek word, kenao, which appears in verse 8 here. He humbled himself or he emptied himself. Most translations uh, use the word empty. Uh, um, I don't know, do you, you get the ESV. Is yeah, yeah, verse 7 starts out, but emptied himself. But he emptied himself. Okay. But 8 has it as well. Right. Okay. Oh, wait, no, wait. Maybe maybe it is yes. seven. <clears throat> eight uses humbled. Okay, seven so eight seven. uses. Okay, so seven uses emptied and right. eight uses humbled. Okay. Um, the word here is kanao. That's the, the normal translation of this verb is to empty. And this English word choice leads to the question of what did Christ empty himself? Uh, I, because I used the. NIV, I've sort of tipped my hand is where I'm going with this. But uh, this is a huge question in a lot of theologies. What did Jesus empty himself of in order to uh, come to earth and such? So usually the verb appears with an object. You empty yourself of something. So, you know, if you take a picture, you empty it of the water or the lemonade or whatever happens to be in it. Uh, something is poured out. But in this case, no object is supplied, leading to speculation. What did he empty himself of? How do, what does this humiliation look like? And there's a couple of options that are used and uh, offered, and some of them are, are pretty seriously wrong. Okay. Some suggest that he emptied himself of his deity. He emptied himself of his divine form. This understanding is clearly impossible because, as we've seen, for his death on the cross to be of any value, he had to remain God. So by not counting equality with God something to be grasped is not meant that God gave up equality with God, but rather that he did not tenaciously cling to his divine prerogatives or exploit them selfishly. So by taking the form of a servant is not meant an act of transmutation. Okay, what do I mean by that? What I mean is it's not that God, he ceased being God and became something else, a human. So he's not transmuted from one into the other. Rather, as we've seen in the language of the, of the, of the previous point, something was added to him. That's the only change, if we can even call it change, that takes place. He is changed by addition. Okay, so he didn't, cease being what he was and become something entirely else. Rather, he took to himself a human nature and cloaked his immutably divine self in it. So think of his divine nature as you know, as, as taking on itself a coat, shrugs on a coat, uh, and the coat is 
is his humanity. But nothing changes about his essence, his divine essence. He's simply cloaked with another form. Okay? It's not as though he ceased being God. Some suggest that he emptied himself of his attributes. So he remained God, but he gave up his attributes. But this is also a problem because, as we learned last semester, God is what his attributes are. If God gives up his attributes, he's no longer God. So to lose them would be for him to cease to be God. Furthermore, at various points, we actually see him intermittently using these divine prerogatives and we're going to have to talk about why sometimes he does and sometimes he doesn't, but at least at times he does. So it's not as though he gives them up entirely, uh, certainly, because he still uses them at times. Another common view, I think is still a problem, is that he emptied himself of the independent use of his attributes. That is, he retained his attributes, but he... He limited their usage uh, by the permission of his father. So he didn't. He, he basically agreed not to use his divine attributes unless God the Father led him or permitted him or, or ordered him to do so. Now, I will admit here that within the economic trinity, there is a hierarchy of a relationship involving something of a subordination of the Son to the Father. The Father is over the Son. The Son is under the Father. But in saying that, I don't want to suggest here that the Son is any less powerful. He's equal in power and glory to his Father. Uh, So no matter what's going on here, it's not as though he is ontologically less than his Father, or of less value. Okay? And... And it's not as though God is God the Father can willy nilly use his attributes however he wants, and Jesus has to, you know, has to do whatever the Father says only. Uh, the one of the attributes of God, of course, is that he is. Remember, Ase. Remember that one? the Aseity of God, the one that he is of himself. He's independent. He's sovereign. So, in order for Jesus to be God, he has to have sovereignty. Uh, but as as we as we sort of look at the relationship between the father and the son, you see a a relationship of mutual deference at times. It's not as though any of the members of the Godhead are just out belligerently using uh, their divine prerogatives and, and attributes for their own selfish interests, not thinking of the other two members of the Godhead. That never happens. Uh, so in that sense, there never is an absolutely independent use of the attributes. Nonetheless, each one of the members of the Godhead has independence. They are sovereign, and for them not to be sovereign is to be not God. Okay. So, there is no conflict within the divine will. There is no suspension of Christ's aseity. There is no diminution of Christ's intrinsic authority, no change in his relationship to the divine persons. Were any of these to be true, the Trinity would no longer be the Trinity. Christ would be less than God. Atonement would be scuttled. God would not be any longer. So, it's not, I don't think it's appropriate even to speak here in terms of 
the son giving up the independent use of his attributes. Okay. I do ask this question here. What about passages which teach that Jesus was bound to do the will of his father? Now, he says this on multiple occasions. And I answered that this was true before the incarnation. While each of the persons of the Godhead is is independent, none of them acts on his own self-interest to the exclusion of the others. Uh, The word subordination is used, and perhaps it's a little too strong a term. You know, the son is subordinated to the father. Sounds like he has no authority, that he's sort of, you know, ground down by this domineering father. But I think we should probably think more in terms of deference. The son defers to the father. It's a, it's, it's not a, it's not an unwilling thing. It's a willing thing. Uh, and I, I mean, ideally, remember that's you know, the, 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 the marital relationship is, according to First Corinthians eleven, supposed to be patterned after the Trinity. Ideally, uh, your your wife submits to you. But that word, and, and sometimes we look at that word and says that sounds like such a harsh word, you know. It's and uh, you, you you look at uh, you know the, the, the husband sort of lording it over, or dominating his wife. But that's that's not the idea. The idea is she's just deferring to you in love, in trust. Okay, and that's the ideal. And I think that's exactly what we see within the Trinity. It's a it's a deference, uh, not a not a not a not a harsh act of subordinating another. Do you think this uh, plays into when Satan was tempting Christ? What's uh, yes? In terms of yes. Yeah, we'll talk about the temptation coming up here, but yes, I think that's part of it. Hey, you've been you've been sort of pushed down the the ladder here. Um, why don't you just go ahead and take what's rightfully yours now? And, you know, it's, there's an appeal to that. I mean, Jesus could say, yeah. Yeah, I could take it. It's it's mine. It's rightfully mine. I could take it. But in order to do that, he would have to give up his mission. And so that's 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 the tension with the... Uh, so, you know, throw yourself down and, you know, everyone will worship you. Well, yeah, everyone will worship him, but something's got to happen first. Can't we can't take a shortcut? Yeah, I think you're right. I say any of these views on here on page eleven are are sometimes called canonic theologies. The idea, and I, I'm I'm borrowing this from the pocket dictionary of theological terms is that Christ's self-emptying involved the setting aside of certain divine attributes or the independent exercise of his divine powers. And this approach, which was birthed in the 19th century, came of age in the 20th century in the writings of a fellow by the name of Jürgen Moltmann. And it stands as the basis for a surging view of the atonement we're going to have to talk about uh, later on in the course here of incarnational solidarity. That is... When Jesus came to earth, what he was trying, what he was coming to do was to relate with us and to understand us and sort of rub shoulders with us and, 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 and thereby help us. 
fact, there's a fellow by the name of Tony Jones who wrote a systematic theology, and he describes it in rather sort of colloquial terms here. Uh, he, he says that in the Old Testament, God was uh, a, a domineering God, and he was trying to get his people to obey by giving them laws, and they resisted, and, and he... And God was frustrated. He couldn't figure out why these people were were so against him. And so he finally decides he's going to send his son uh, to to be one of them and to find out exactly what makes them tick. And so he sends Jesus down here. This this is the emergent church, incidentally. This is considered a you know a a, a, a Protestant branch of theology here. So this is the emergent church. Uh, and and so what God does is sends His Son. Jesus rubs shoulders with people, uh, walks the same paths, eats the same food, tries to understand. Finally, starts to figure out that the problem they've been facing up till this point is that you know He's God's been just too heavy-handed. What they needed, what these people need in, instead, is someone to have. To someone to have solidarity with them, someone to have some uh, to come alongside and sympathize and empathize, and if God would simply do this, they'd come along. They 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 they'd start towing the line, and uh, of course he it, it goes too far and they actually kill him. And but it's at that point uh, that that God finally realizes what is what is necessary in order to help people, and so the mission of the church. And this is particularly important with the emergent church, the emerging church, is that the mission of the church is to come alongside of people and help them. And if we do that, then they'll come along, and they're 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 going to they'll they'll they'll, they'll end up where we need them to be. So you 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 help them in whatever maybe you 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 are. It's an incarnational church. You be you become you go into the world and help you. You, 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 people are are facing social injustice, and 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 they're being downtrodden politically. So you come alongside of them and help them as part of the mission of the church, and 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 this you know results in them responding appropriately uh, to uh, to the rest of the revelation of God. So. So, so th- it all comes from this idea of a canonic theology that the purpose here is for God to sort of relinquish who He is, come be one of us, rub shoulders with us, and help us. And uh, I think all of these end up, to a greater or lesser degree, pointing the church in that direction in terms of its mission. So, I, I, I'm really concerned uh, that we not take any of these views. Even though they've been taken, uh, um, you know, even by conservatives. How do we speak to as a as a child? He still had to learn things. Mm-hmm. That's what seems confusing to me. Yeah, like he had to learn that you know, don't touch that snake; it's poison, probably, or yeah. you know, stuff that we had to learn. Yep. But if he's all knowing. Yeah, I mean, that, that's, that's all coming. Yeah, that's all mind. coming up here. I don't want to get too far ahead of myself, but yes, and I've that, read it, and it's still like, ugh, I don't understand it. Yeah, so yeah, the, we'll have a we'll have a very thorough discussion of that coming up. Because uh, so, he couldn't be omnipresent personally, not humanly, right? He's not humanly omnipresent, but 
his the second person of the Godhead remains omnipresent. But his because to me a, a body fixes you. Well, it does. I mean, but there is so there is a manifestation of the second person of the Trinity that is eternally localized. Right. It's in a, it's in a, it's in a location, but that doesn't mean the whole of the second person of the Godhead is fixed. To me, that's harder to grasp than the Trinity. Yeah. Well, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so, so what, what you end up having is, and, and we'll talk about this, is there's one person, the divine person, and two forms. It's as though there's one, and it's hard for us, there is no analogy, because there is no, at best our analogies are sort of anemic, like, okay, you know, if, if okay, this is a bad analogy, but let's use it anyway. Okay, so your 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 son, you know, has a hat trick playing soccer, and they wouldn't win the championship. And as a father, you're proud of him, right? But as a husband, are you proud of him? Well, not really, because that's a that's a that's a different expression of who I am. Okay. Now, I, I, I reckon there's a lot of problems with this analogy, but but you can see here how that, in one sense, in one of your forms, if I can use it that way, as a husband, there's 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 nothing there, but as a father, you're proud. Okay. Um, and and so what we have with the person of God is he the second person of the Trinity. He has a human form, and he has a divine form. And he can express himself through either of these forms. Okay, But in heaven, we're going to see him... The only way we can see him is in the... True, but it doesn't mean he's going to be... It doesn't mean he's only in one place. Okay, he's As God, he's omnipresent. He has to be, by definition. But, but he has this localized manifestation... Same thing. I mean, same thing is true when we we pray, "Our Father who art in heaven." Is he in heaven? Yeah. Is he here? Yeah. Well, what's special about him being in heaven? Well, there's apparently some sort of a localized manifestation in heaven that's spectacular, and so we sort of aim our prayers there, even though he's everywhere. Okay. So same thing with Jesus. Jesus is localized, and we see him. We talk to him. That doesn't that doesn't diminish the fact that he's also everywhere. We'll talk a little more about that. I mean, that's 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 part of a broader discussion. So, so back to this kenosis. Then, the better approach to this issue is to follow the lead of BDAG. What that what that means? Bauer and Gingrich. It's a standard Greek lexicon dictionary. In seeing this word kanao, when used without an object, it doesn't say what you're emptied of. That it's metaphorical of humility. So, without an object, the word simply means to humble oneself rather than empty oneself of what? Okay. All we have to do is say he humbled himself. He wasn't emptied out and refilled, but rather he was the volunt- he voluntarily uh, subjected himself to humiliation at the hands of his creatures when they ridiculed him and ultimately killed him. And I say here, and I said we'd come back to this context here, that makes sense of the context as well, 
because Paul is saying to the Philippian believers, you need to follow Jesus' example of humility, not exchanging one form for another form or 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 refusing to be God any longer. Uh, rather, you're to follow his example of humiliation and humility. So Paul's not asking his readers to give up their natures or give up their attributes or give up their freedom, but rather he's asking them to live lives of humble sacrifice because that's what Jesus did. He lived a life of humble sacrifice. He gave up uh, not himself or his attributes, but some of the prerogatives that he had in, 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 as, as God and was insulted as a, as a, as a, as a human a while on the earth. So in brief, Jesus Christ was not emptied and then filled. Rather, he was humbled and then exalted. Okay. Questions on that? There's a question here sometimes asked, was Christ's humanity part of the kenosis? Is it is it is it humiliating for God to take on a human form, um, and if you ask ten Christians, you probably get a split half and half, right? Um, exegetically, Philippians two could be taken to mean this: that that humanity is a God taking on a human form is a humiliating thing, but it's not necessary to take it this way. Theologically speaking, this can't be. Since God remains human after his kenosis, you know, remember it's reversed. You know, therefore, he was he was humiliated, he died, therefore God has reversed the kenosis. He's exalted him again. So he was humiliated and exalted. So he there was a kenosis, a humiliation, and an exaltation. And yet we find that he remains human in his exalted state. And so we look at this and say that the humiliation that Jesus endured is not necessarily just becoming human. It's not a, an intrinsically bad thing to be a human. Okay, It's a bad thing to be a fallen human. But it's not necessarily a bad thing to be a human. Remember Genesis 2. God looked at everything that he had created and behold, it's very good. So being a human is not necessarily a bad thing. Being a fallen human is. And Jesus did not become a fallen human, but he did become a become, become a human, yes. It seems like the term kenosis uh, uh, leads to the confusion, I think, of this. Kenosis means to empty. Yeah. Then you're thinking that Christ is emptying him of his attributes or setting voluntarily setting them right. aside. To me, the term creates the confusion. Right. Yeah, so I think humbling is a better term. Although, if you look at the uh, most of your translation, most of your translation use use the word empty um, rather than humble. NIV, I think, gets it right here. But the study notes correct it though. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So, question about our bodies. So, I know at, at a certain point in time, right, we'll have uh, spiritual bodies that are incorruptible. So um, then, then Christ. So, was, so our body will be like Christ 
went one day went after he was resurrected. Mm-hmm. So was there a change in then his his body too from? Yeah, it's a good question. Pre-death and post-death. Yeah, I, I mean, there's some differences, right? Because he could come through walls and, and right. Yeah, but. most of what we know about the resurrection body, we derive from what we know about Christ's resurrected body. We really don't have any description beyond that. But, but we know when we shall we shall see him, we shall be like him. So it's a good comparison to make. So whatever whatever he is like post resurrection is what we will be like post resurrection. So yes, apparently there is some sort of change. Um, it's hard to know. It it it, it it's interesting. It, it, I mean, it, talking recognizable. Though. He was recognizable, but not immediately. <clears throat> and remember, he they they do recognize him as Jesus. But first off, you know. Mary's in the garden, and yeah. she thinks he's the gardener. Remember? Of course, you know, you're not expecting this. True, yeah, and it could so could be that so she's so grieving so and just doesn't mind. notice. Or is that a miracle where he blinds their eyes? So true, true. And the walking through walls might have been a miracle rather than a function of the new body. It's true, yes, it, 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 that is true. Um, does so. the Bible actually say he walks through the walls? It doesn't. It, it, it just, it, I think the implication is there, although there's there's ways of reading that, that that don't require walking through walls. You know, the door was locked and he was in their midst. It could mean that he suddenly opened the door and was in their midst. It, it, it could he picked the lock, and- <laughs> <laughs> right? So, so it, he has the master key, <laughs> right? But it does appear that there's some difference, and and the best I can suggest here is there's a the the body that we have is made to be what it should be. Mm-hmm. I mean, we're all not our bodies are not what they ought to be. Uh, uh, that's that's my well, be my understanding that our bodies six packs. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's better looking. <laughs> uh, so so and oh, and, and, and then also you know if you've got <laughs> if you've got scars or if you've got you know you know you've been emaciated you, you had you had poor diet and you in your you were stunted growth or mm-hmm. or you you know just the lines of worry and and trouble the effects of sin. yeah all those effects of sin will be erased and so there, there seems like there will be a resemblance to what you were but it won't be it won't be precisely the same well you talk about the effects of sin though. I think about Christ's body and the piercing right that's yes. almost the effects of sin and there's, those are still recognized right it's hard to know exactly why that is it, it could be that those are just there as reminders for us mm-hmm. rather than them being you know, we're we're going to have the same. You know, if you get a scar on your finger or something, yeah, that you're going to. I don't know that that. Yeah, I, Dr. McKean always talks about that when he when he gets his new body, he's going to get a lot of body parts back because he's, <laughs> he's got half of his colon missing, half of his pancreas missing, his whole pancreas missing, his he's got a finger missing, he's got an eye. You know, it's like he's he's looking forward to that new body because he's going to get all those the body parts back, and, and I'm inclined to think that he's right. You know, but. That uh, those those things will be fixed. But, uh, I mean, I always think, what about children? Is there gonna be ch- you know, yeah. I, mean, I don't think we know. Yes, it's hard to know. I, I'm inclined to think that we all sort of become our ideal age, but it's, it's yeah. just that's just probably wishful thinking as much as it is, you know, uh, and, and something that uh, there's that there's anything to base that on. But yes.
So he retains his humanity, but it is a, like you say, it is a glorified human. Who actually brought up that suggestion? Yeah, there is a, there is a glorified humanity uh, that uh, he exhibits, but it's still a humanity. That's the point. We're not going to be spirit. No, we're going, we're going. Well, not going to be pure spirits, right? Okay, so why is it that Jesus becomes a man? And probably the the, the quick you know, shoot from the hip answer is to die on the cross for our sins. I think the, the answer perhaps is a little bit more complex than that. Um, and and we went in fact we even start with this question: Would God have become flesh had man not sinned? Well, if the whole reason Jesus becomes flesh is to die for our sins, then the answer would have to be no. But as we look at the material in the Scripture, there seems to be a greater purpose for the incarnation than merely dying. That's obviously an important part of it. But uh, as we look at the uh, at the Scriptures, we find indications, perhaps. Uh, that uh, the incarnation would have occurred either way. So, um, being a human, again, is not inherently humiliating. Uh, So, him becoming a person is not necessarily a bad thing. We observe further that immediately after the creation of Adam, the climax of each sinless day was an evening stroll in the garden with God. No doubt a pre-incarnate form of Christ. In other words, incarnation is historically primary and irrespective of the need for redemption. God was walking with Adam and Eve in the garden on a daily basis, and they were enjoying fellowship together. And, And the fact that they were strolling together in the garden suggests some sort of an incarnate form. Uh, so before there was sin, before there was a need for redemption, there was this this relationship, this personal relationship of physical beings, God in a physical form with man in a physical form, which seems to predate sin. So, so the purpose for incarnation seems to be greater uh, or more primary uh, than sin itself. Now, after Adam lost that fellowship through sin... Regenerate man has always craved a visible, tangible manifestation of God with whom to fellowship. Job, for instance. Uh, Job 9, 32-35, after he's criticized by one of his friends, uh, he, he, he sort of fires back and says, I, I wish there was someone that could arbitrate between me and God to lay his hand upon us both. So, so some sort of a mediator or arbitrator, a legal mediator or arbitrator between the two of them that could settle the matter that Job hadn't done anything wrong. At least not big enough to, to, to deserve all that he went through. And so he said, I want, uh, I, but, but, the, but he responds, but, but God is not a man like me that I might answer him. So he's, he's frustrated. I can't talk to God. God can't talk to me because he's not a man. And so there's no way to arbitrate between me and God. Of course, that brings us uh, brings to our attention then the, the thought of uh, 1 Timothy 2.15. There is one God and one mediator between God and men, 
the man, Christ Jesus. So, so Job is looking for a mediator who can understand humanity and understand God, and to then be able, for because of that advantage, be able to arbitrate between them. And so this is this is something that he longed for. Philip requested of Jesus, "Show us the Father, and we'll be satisfied." We we just we just want to see God. And what's of course is what's Jesus' answer? You've, you've seen me, so you've seen the Father. I I am I am the revealer of the Father. Does that mean we're all a little charismatic? How <laughs> so? Well, that uh, we crave a visible, tangible manifestation. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> we, we, I mean, our humanity is very complex. <clears throat> I think we're going to see that even with Christ. So there's a complexity to his humanity that is that exceeds just a physical form. There's 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 intellectual and psychological. Uh, relatability that's there too, yeah. Hey, Mark, I, I think you found Christ in Job. You know, we look for Christ. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> and then I say the climax of all history is when God will dwell among us and be our God and we his people. So after the, uh, after the sin problem has finally been set behind us and resolved, what is the what is the grand climax of of eternity, and how are we going to continue to live? We're going to live in fellowship with God, who actually physically comes down and actually makes His dwelling among us. I mean, we saw that perhaps foreshadowed in the temple, where the cloud, you know, Jesus God in the form of a cloud, sort of was there in the temple and. And so he made his dwelling among them, but that's sort of a, an, an unsatisfying kind of, of of dwelling with us. I mean, he's 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 closed up into this room that nobody can get into. I mean, there, there's you you can see there's obviously some some shortcomings of that. But what we find in Revelation 21, that's the climax. God is actually going to come down and make his dwelling among us. We will be his people. And he will be our our God, and God Himself will be with us. So that's the climax of of eternity. That there is a there is a there's a there's a personal fellowship between God and His image bearers. So all that to say, we can logically conclude that since Jesus is the best and greatest revelation of God, God still would have become human to reveal Himself to us to live with us, to receive the greatest possible glory from us. We thus conclude that the first and greatest purpose of the Incarnation is not redemption per se, but rather, number one, to provide mankind a visible and everlasting revelation of the, ordinarily, invisible God. So John 1, 14 and 18, no one has seen God at any time, but the only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he's explained him. Uh, Jesus' response to Philip, he who has seen me has seen the Father. You, you, you want to see God. You want to have a conversation with God. Guess what? Here I am. Now, specifically, his incarnation made visible parameters of fellowship between the creator and the creature. What is necessary for me to have this relationship with God? What, what, 
what was lost in the Garden of Eden and how do we get it back? The fact of Christ's kingship. I did a study a few years, uh, two years ago for a, uh, for a Christmas series I was doing in a church I was preaching at. Um, and I went through all of the passages in the Gospels that that indicated why Jesus came. So I came in order that, uh, so far, I think there were 46 of them, if I can remember. Uh, there are 46 occasions in Scripture where we find God's, Jesus says, I came to earth in order that. And I, I sort of listed them all out and basically came up with basically five categories and, 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 and slotted them in here. Most of them show up here. Uh, but this, this one per, particularly is interesting. Uh, uh, he's having this conversation with Pilate before his crucifixion. And Pilate says, are you a king? And Jesus responds, yes, I am a king. In fact, for this very reason, I was born and came into the world to testify of this truth. So he came to show the world that he was the king. Not just the savior, important aspect of what he's doing, but he came to show the world that who he is, and specifically he came to show them that he was the king that answers to no one. We also see his holiness and justice. John 9, I have come into the world so that the blind will see and those who think they see will become blind. So he's sort of this, this equalization is taking place. I'm going to establish justice. So he comes to earth here to divulge himself show himself the kind God he is, but also the powerful and royal God that he is, and the just and righteous God that he is. So he comes in order to make this tangible, to be make it visible, so that we can understand God better, having seen him, than we did before, having not seen him. Okay, so I think that's the primary reason. Uh, primary in time. And I think perhaps even primary in importance. Now the next one, this one that sort of comes to mind, is the is the one that gets the most press time. And there's more. I've got more Bible verses here than any other section. So it's obviously an important thing uh, for Jesus to come in order to save his people, you know, die for sinners, and to save his people from their sin. But I think there is something that's prior to that, and that is to make himself known. And I think that would have happened irrespective of whether there was sin. So, second reason then, to die for sinners and to save his people from their sin. So we, we know that the sin that holds us in its grip consigns us to death, and that is human death. We have to die. Mankind may suffer this death themselves, or they can be the beneficiaries of a substitutionary death of a sinless human. Okay, that's Those are the two options. You can either pay for your sin by dying eternally, or your sins can be paid for by another. Those are the those are the two options. There are no other options. Those are the two options. Justice could have it no other way. Now, since God, being neither human nor even bodily, corporeal, couldn't die, man's case was grave, in fact, hopeless. Only by God's accepting enfleshment could mankind hope to live again? It's the only possible way. Which is, I think, uh, spelled out here in Hebrews 2. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death 
he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and to free them, who, those who all, for all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. And here it is. For this reason, he had to be made like his brothers in every way. Why did he have to become human? Why did he have to take on flesh? Because there was no other way. He had to be make, made like his brothers in every way. And again, they're not compelling him. It's not as though we compel God to become enfleshed, but rather God, once he decided that he was going to save people, this was the only way. This is the way it had to be. Had to be like his brothers in every way in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God and so that he might be able to make atonement for the sins of the people. You know, he had, in order to be an, a successful high priest, he had to be like us. In order to die for us, he had to be human. So once once God established the uh, sacrificial system, then that's why that's the only way is if Jesus became. Is that is that the right? I mean, you might you might be getting the cart ahead of the the horse here. Uh, this this was something that was requisite of God's of God's nature even before there was a sacrificial system. In in some ways, a sacrificial system, even though it chronologically comes prior to Jesus' death, was put there in order for us to understand the justice of God and exactly what Jesus was doing. But but it, it's really it's it's not that okay he established a sacrificial system oh and so this is the way it has to be but rather this is the way it has to be and so God established the sacrificial system. Okay. It had to be that way because that's the way that God decreed it, or is it tied to some particular thing in God's nature? Yeah, I think it is. the 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 justice of God is you know. The, the the law is an expression of his character. Again, so so any any law that you find in the Old Testament, you know, in the in the Mosaic Code, is a reflection of his character. It, you can you can you can hang every one of the commands onto his character. There's and sometimes we scratch our heads and wonder what exactly it is, but 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 everything can be tied to his character, and I think the sacrificial system is is, is like that. It. In his justice, there had to be tit for tat, right? A life for a life. Uh, that's the law of the tooth, right? The eye for an eye, tooth for tooth, life for life. That's the way it has to be. Because in God's nature and character, that's the only just response to sin. Okay? And so, so, so when, when, and because of God's nature and character, it had to be that way. So when it comes down to it, how is it that someone can be made right with God, life for life? It's the only way it could be. It's not that it's arbitrary, like, is it God is writing a play and this is how he wanted it? Right, 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 right. Yeah, it's not capricious. It's necessary to his nature. A good question. Okay. Again, and here's something you've already brought out here. Here, God can't be required of us to do anything. But once he, by his own will, chose to redeem us, there was no other option. He had to become man. And this is sometimes called the hypothetical consequent necessity view of the atonement. Uh, what I mean here by hypothetically, once he decided it's going to be this, this way, consequently, it had to be 
the way it was. Okay? And so we find Hebrews 10, it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but a body you've prepared for me. We can only be sanctified by the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And so we're and we're familiar with these. Matthew one twenty one, Christ came to save his people from their sins. He came to redeem his people. He came to help his people. Now my heart is troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. This is as he's approaching the cross. Should I should I should I back away? Should I should I should I take the quick out, call ten thousand angels, destroy the world and set them free? No. No. He said, No, it's for this very reason I came. <laughs> I can't give it up now. Christ appeared. Why? So that he might take away our sins. So this is obviously a very uh, uh, important function of the incarnation as well. Again, I don't know if it's the only or, or even the primary, but it's obviously a very important aspect of the incarnation. We also find that he comes to give men his own eternal life. Uh, so we find that the death... Yeah, I, I always ask, Let me ask you a question here. Um, so the death of Christ, is that enough to save us? Don't read. <laughs> well, if he died and wasn't uh, glorified, it would mean he was just Okay, so the death and re- the resurrection, of course, right. but is is that enough to, to get us into heaven? I haven't read it yet. Jesus. Yeah. Imputed righteousness. Right. right. Perfect life. Exactly. It's not just his imputed death. That just sort of makes us neutral. Mm-hmm. We have to have his imputed righteousness to fit us and make us make us suited for heaven. Okay, and so in order for us to in order for us to, you know, gain entry into heaven, it's not enough that he simply comes and dies for sin. He also has to live for us, and so he shares with us his eternal life. That's why the third point is what it is. His death merely erases our guilt and our obligation to die, but that's not enough. God does not merely require us to be released from the penalty of the law. He also demands that we keep it perfectly. And this we can't do. It can only be accomplished by imputing Christ's life of perfect human obedience to mankind in order to give them positive merit. So Jesus says, I came in order to fulfill the law. Okay. Why did he come to fulfill the law? Because we needed to fulfill the We needed to keep the law. And we hadn't. And so he has to fill, fulfill the law for us. Okay. And I give an illustration here. You know, in many states, even after a convicted felon has paid his debt to society, in prison, he's not qualified to serve in public office, carry a gun, even vote. Even though he's paid the penalty, some privileges are extended only to those who have actually kept the law. Okay, I think we have a like an in, incomplete picture of what's going on here. It's not just that we've paid our debt to society by going to prison. We've actually kept the law. That's what's necessary in order to have these privileges. So in order to be fit for heaven and be and be uh, equipped to, to enter into heaven, we actually have to live perfect lives. So heaven is not merely for those whose debt is paid, but for those who have lived a perfectly obedient life. And so that's what Jesus does. I came so that my sheep might have my life and have it to the full. 
I am the living bread that comes down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. So it's the living that he's come, not just to take take away our dying, but to give us living. So both of those are are, are, are back in the, our, our, our elements here. I was hoping to get through all, all of these, but uh, uh, I, I, I don't want to steal your time. So we'll, we'll cut it off there. I wanted to go to that last point there, but uh, it's, it's 8.15. So we'll cut it off in the middle of our discussion here and uh, finish this up next time. We'll talk about a new discussion next time. You'll get new notes next time. We'll talk, start talking about the virgin birth of Christ. Uh, perhaps a little bit an interesting topic there. Any final questions you have about what we've talked about? Okay. Well, we'll go ahead and call tonight then, and we'll see you next Wednesday, Lord willing.